when I think of the word absenteeism, to me, it is an indicator of an unhealthy system and, and often a not equitable system. That was Matt Redham, a trauma counselor in rural Butte County in Northern California. He works with students who are chronically absent. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Jonathan Sterwald. Well, chronic absenteeism in California, and specifically rural California, is the subject of a special report by EdSource. And as many of you know, California for the first time is measuring chronic absenteeism. That's defined as when a student is absent for 10% or more of the approximately 180 instructional days during any school year. Chronic absenteeism is now one of the items on the California school dashboard, and school districts are expected to focus on the problem and to reduce their chronic absenteeism rates. Well, it turns out that those rates are higher in rural areas, which is why we've decided to take a closer look. Dina Capsalis is on the front lines of dealing with the issue in Paradise Unified. You remember that's a district that was devastated by fire last year and destroyed the entire community. And as the director of student services, Capsalis has been key in getting the district to take what's called a trauma-informed approach to getting kids to school. One of our frustrations as a student services department has been that a lot of resources historically available to us have been offered through a very urban lens. And through the rural lens, we know that we really have to provide access as opposed to the other way around. So instead of saying, here's the service, come and get it, we have to say, here's the service, how can we get it to you? You can hear more from Dina on a video that you can find on our website. One of the students we profiled in that video is Kaylee Atkins. She's now 20 years old. She did eventually graduate from high school, but not after having a really tough time changing schools and being one of those chronically absent students. Here she talks about some of the challenges she had in getting to school. Both of my parents were like on, drug, on drugs, so then my dad would like go to jail for like theft. My parents would be too busy doing what they were doing that they wouldn't take me to school. Or if I would like ride on the bus, they wouldn't be able to pick me up. Sometimes I'd miss more than like a couple days a week. Other days I'd go for a week. So it just depended on if what my family needed. Let's hear from Bethany Doran, who was Kaylee's biology teacher at Las Plumas High School in Oroville. A lot of times you can tell that there's things going on uh, with people's families and you don't ask per se but um, the stories come out especially when they do spend time feeling like when they take their downtime in your classroom you know the first thing to help a student like Kaylee is to listen you just listen when you can teachers are really busy some students are not as willing to share information but Kaylee was always ready to ask for help to read the full report, go to EdSource's website. We have a database which will allow you to look up the chronic absenteeism rate in your own school district. And terrific reporting by David Washburn on our staff, by the way. And congrats to all the other folks who worked on the project. It was an outstanding effort, no question. Okay, John, uh, let's now get to the main issue we wanted to focus on this week, special education funding. 
School districts and advocates for special ed students were thrilled over the biggest increase in decades that Governor Gavin Newsom proposed earlier this year for special education in next year's budget. But they sharply disagree with the governor on how that money should be spent, and it's turning into one of the biggest disagreements in education as legislative leaders and Newsom head towards final negotiations over spending for the coming fiscal year. Yeah, special education is complex, and it's widely misunderstood, and it's been proven to be hard to fix. So we're going to spend the bulk of this podcast trying to get to the bottom of why Newsom and much of the education community are so far apart over what you'd think they'd be wildly celebrating, which is more money. John, you wrote about the differences between what the Newsom administration is proposing and what most school and special education groups are in favor of. So lay out the issue for us, and please keep it simple. No acronyms. Well, okay, except for one, SELPA. Okay, now wait a minute. What is a SELPA? A SELPA is a special education local planning agency. There are about 134 of them, but we'll get back to that in a minute. The bottom line is this. The legislature wants to spread the $700 million in new money that the governor's proposing over all districts, while the governor wants to target all the money to about a quarter of the districts. Okay, but that, that's $700 million you mean for special ed? Just for special education for next year. That's significant. That's like a 20% increase. Huge. Yeah, biggest in decades. So the reasoning over the difference, it's complex. So... Let's back up for a minute, and there are several points to keep in mind about special education funding. Okay, start with point one. Point one. The share of state and federal funding for special education has dropped significantly over the past decade as costs of special education have escalated, and that's left districts to pay a bigger share out of their own general fund for special education. They cover about 60% of special education budgets now. And one reason, as I understand it, that these costs are rising is that a larger percentage of special ed students are being diagnosed with autism, which can involve significant costs if students need aids, out-of-school placements, and so on. That's absolutely right. And so the costs have become a big source of tension. Next to pension costs, special ed is probably the fastest rising mandated costs that districts face. And it's one reason why they say they can't afford more teacher pay and smaller classes. Okay, what about point number two then? All right, point number two. The state share of special education funding doesn't go to districts directly, but through the 130 agencies that we call SELPAs. Most of them are geographically based. Jerry Brown didn't like the arrangement either. He wanted to uh, fund special education like everything else through the local control funding formula, but he didn't want to create a controversy over special education funding that might sidetrack passage of the funding formula. So he gave up, but he also didn't increase special education funding while he was in office. Okay, so that's point number two. What about point number three? I hope we're getting to the end of the list soon. So point number three, the local special education districts aren't funded equally. They're funded under a 40-year-old formula with huge differences in per-student funding. So the legislature has vowed to fix it, but it hasn't. So districts have been waiting for a chance to make funding more equal without punishing districts that already get more than the state average. So what is Governor Newsom proposing that's so controversial? He's trying to help out, proposed a lot of extra money. He has. It's a big, big pot of money, but he's more like Jerry Brown. He'd leave the special education districts intact, getting what they get now, but he'd run the new money through school districts with two criteria. Number one, 
To get more funding, districts would have to have more low-income kids and English learners than average, which is how the funding formula works. And they'd also have to have more special education students in their districts than the state average. That's pretty complex, but as a result, again, only about a quarter of districts, charter schools, and county offices would get any of the new money, while the rest wouldn't get anything in new funding. Wow, that sounds uh, problematical. Well, it certainly has stirred up a lot of opposition. Let's uh, turn to some of the experts for their perspectives. We're fortunate to have with us today Maureen Burness, who is co-executive director of the Statewide Special Education Task Force. She's now active in the Coalition for Adequate Funding for Special Education. Thank you for joining us, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. Tell us what's wrong with the proposal of the Department of Finance and the governor and how you and your coalition would spend it instead. California's school districts receive varying amounts of money per uh, student, and the concept that everyone should have an equal amount of funding, rather like that in LCFF, the local control funding formula, is what special ed was promised the last time they changed the funding and had to stop during the recession. And so for us to actually receive money that would equalize all school districts so that they have similar ability to pay for these services that are required has been the priority for uh, for the coalition for years, as well as one of the prime recommendations of our special education task force. Let me stop you there for a second. So uh, I guess we're talking about big disparities among districts, right? You could be a district in your neighbor with basically the same number of special education students could be getting, what, half as much money as you do? That's exactly right. The uh, rates range from less than $500 to over $1,000 per ADA based upon the prior funding from way historically, like 1978 when things very first started, funding of special ed at a state level. And what has changed is that every school district should get more money, but again, because of the recession, it simply stopped And so we're stuck at these earlier rates that are still completely unequal. The governor's proposal doesn't do the equalization of funding. So my understanding is that the governor would not, as you said, equalize the funding. Instead, he'd create a new formula in which the money would go to districts with high percentages of low-income students and with high numbers of students with disabilities. But other districts then would not get any money. Is that right? That's right. And yet every school district has students with disabilities. And so every school district needs to have better, more adequate funding in order to provide those services. In special ed, again, it doesn't matter where you live and it doesn't matter what the proportion of other students are in your district. If you're a child with a disability, you have needs that must be addressed by your school district. You would also spend money for students with disabilities who are in preschool. And I think listeners may be surprised that, in fact, the state doesn't currently fund that. Is that right? That is right. And it was probably our second biggest recommendation from the task force, and that is to recognize that in California and nationally, we're responsible for children from birth to 22 in special education. And the current funding formula funds on a K-12 ADA basis. And yet, by the age of three, when students require any kind of special education preschool services, we're responsible to provide them. So here we get 
no direct money under a K-12 funding formula and yet are responsible to serve once the child is age three and identified with a disability. And this has been particularly critical for school districts as the incidence of autism has risen because the younger the identification of a student with autism, the better the potential results are for children. So you can be identified at 18 months or two or three, and suddenly the school district has to provide significant amounts of services And yet, school districts have received very little funding from the state. So it looks like the legislature really is at at loggerheads with the governor and department finance on these issues. And how would you expect this to be resolved? Well, my understanding is that the typical process at the state level is that the the big three, the, the Senate, the Assembly, and the governor ultimately sit down and basically hash it out. Our hope is that the rationale that we believe our legislature has come to understand in terms of better access for all students uh, would be an important argument in that discussion. And that hopefully with all of that support that we're getting at the state level, the governor might be willing to bend and say, perhaps our legislature has learned something and might be able to support this idea. That was Maureen Burness, a former special education administrator who's now active in the Coalition for Adequate Funding for Special Education. To get a district perspective, we have Scott Patterson on the line. Scott is Deputy Superintendent of Grossmont Union High School District. That's near San Diego. And his district is part of a special ed district. Yes, those SELPAs once again. That gets a lot less in funding per student than the statewide average. So, Scott, how severe is the impact of special education on your district budget, and what would you do if you got the same amount of money that most districts are getting? For us, because our SELPA is underfunded as compared to many other SELPAs statewide, our district is losing out on between one and a half to two million dollars of special education funding per year, depending on which version of the equalization funding proposals that we look at. But because we don't receive enough special education revenue to fully fund the program, we have to make up the difference with our regular program funding known as LCFF funding. So the impact really shows itself on the regular education program. In our case, we would use the additional funds that we might receive under whatever special education proposal ends up being adopted to free up some LCFF dollars, remember that's our regular education funding dollars, and we'd reduce our large class sizes, currently around 38, by say two to three students, which would be huge for us. So another option we would explore though is to dedicate some of those funds to what I call pre-special education services, which are designed to provide supports to students in advance before they enter special education in order to prevent or reduce the need for special education programs. Well, what percentage of your special education budget is covered by your general fund? Our special education program overall is about $60 million a year, and we have to take about 70% of that $60 million, or about $42, $43 million, right out of our LCFF funding to fully fund the special education program. Even though you'd be a bigger winner under the governor's plan, you're not in favor of it. How come? Well, I guess it would be foolish of me to be 
not in favor of the governor's plan because our district would benefit greatly through substantial additional revenues. But realistically, I just don't think it's sustainable ongoing for two reasons. First, it's very narrow in its target with only a very small percentage of districts that would benefit. And second, it presents the possibility of volatile funding where districts close to that 55% threshold could find themselves receiving a lot of funding in one year only to fall below the threshold the next year with a huge fall off in funding. And that really wreaks havoc on our, our ability, people in my position, to budget. So I just think SELPA equalization is more, I guess, call it fair and doesn't suffer from the two issues described above. But, but I got to stop and say that either way, we're very pleased. And I think people around the state are very pleased that the whole topic of additional special education funding is on the table because, as we've discussed just in this conversation, it's woefully underfunded. That was Scott Patterson. He's deputy superintendent of the Grossmont Union High School District. Well, arguably, the only other issue that's more controversial and more challenging to deal with is the issue of charter schools. And we can't let you go, John, without talking about what happened with charter schools this week. Something did happen, Lewis. What happened? Well, a bill that State Senator Maria Elena Durazo had put forward that would have put a hard stop a moratorium on charter school growth in California. Initially, she had said there shouldn't be any new charter schools for five years. Then they got it down to two years, but that bill didn't really go anywhere. And so, super interesting, it does indicate that the larger effort to really put a cap on charter schools is going to run into a lot of difficulty. At least in the Senate, and she sensed she didn't have a majority, so she pulled it back herself, which in fact enables her to bring it up next year. That's right. Now, the idea isn't totally dead because Assemblyman Kevin McCarty has a bill, it's uh, AB 1506 for those of you who follow these things, that would put a cap, not quite as hard a cap. You could open new charter schools if the enrollment had declined and basically would keep enrollment at the current levels. Yeah, for every one that closed, you could open another one, basically. Yes, so that bill is still alive in the legislature and have to see where that goes. But what happened in the Senate does send a strong signal. Yeah, there is probably a difference between the Assembly and the Senate as to how far they want to go with regard to restrictions. So it's interesting to see what happens when the McCarty bill and others come out of the Assembly and then go to the Senate. And again, as we said before, a lot of people are watching Governor Newsom to see what he thinks of these issues. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.